Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. If you're just joining us for the first time today, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Ezekiel entitled Kindness in Exile. By the time we get to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel has now pretty much been dissolved. Uh, The northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah have been overtaken by uh, outside forces, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And God, through his judgment, allowed this to happen because his own people began to reject him, worship other gods, and do some pretty atrocious things in the name of these foreign gods that God had warned them not to do. And so we're looking this whole year at a theme of kindness. And so how is there kindness in exile? How is it kind for God to place people in exile? Um, Now, you have to understand that whenever God placed his judgment on his own people, there were innocent people as well in the mix of all of the judgment that came on those nations. And he sent those individuals along with the rest of the nation into exile as well. There's what we call in the Old Testament a remnant. What is a remnant? It is, if you're a carpet person, you know a remnant is a piece that's left over from the whole batch, right? And you can bind the edges and use it for different purposes. But there's a remnant of people in the Old Testament that remained faithful to God, never bowed their knee to any other foreign gods, sacrificed to those other foreign gods, but remained faithful to the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh himself. They remained faithful to him, but they also were sent into exile. And what we learn while they're in exile is that God is good that he blesses them even in places of exile, just as he did his own people in the wilderness wanderings in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament as well, whenever they rejected what God had to offer them in the promised land and they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. He still provided them clothing and food. Their stuff didn't wear out while they were there. So the God of judgment is still a good God who provides for his people even when they don't deserve it. But we're going to be looking today at Ezekiel chapter 34, and I'll begin to read there in just a minute. But before we get there, I want to talk about leadership. Because today we're going to be looking at two different types of people, good leaders and bad leaders. If you want to fill in your blanks, you already have the answers starting out, all right? Uh, But we're only looking at two people today, good leaders and bad leaders. The reason that Israel and Judah succumbed to the judgment of God through the Assyrians and the Babylonians was because they had poor leaders. You look through the book of Samuel, the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, the books of Chronicles, read, read, the, read just Kings and Chronicles, and you'll find out there were good kings, but there were bad kings, and there were more bad kings than good kings. There were only eight good kings, if you want to put good in quotes, and they were only from the southern kingdom of Judah, and only three of those eight kings actually brought revival to the land of Judah. They weren't good. You go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people are begging for a king, and Samuel goes before God and says, the people want a king, but I've told them they shouldn't have one, and God says, go ahead. Tell them they can have a king, but warn them what they're going to get when they get kings. They reject, they're, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as the king of kings. They want an earthly king like the other nations around them have? Fine. Go ahead and do that. But let them know they're going to be serving that king. Their, their sons are going to be sent to war. The kings will take their lands, the, their crops, and those kind of things for their own usage. Just let them know this is going to happen ahead of time. So this started way back when, but now we get to Ezekiel. They have succumbed to some, basically to their own consequences, to to their own behavior. They set themselves up for failure. 
all because they decided they didn't, that God wasn't enough for them. And so the question today is, is God enough for you? And as we look at the different kinds of leaders, I want you to understand what leadership is. And all the great spirit, spiritual, all the great leadership gurus will tell you that leadership is one word. Of course, it's more than that, but it's influence. Leadership is influence. And the question is, do you have influence? And I talk to people all the time. I get a chance to speak sometimes at Penn Christian Academy in their leadership courses and things like that. And that's one of the questions that we unpack is, do you have influence? You may not have influence to stand on a stage like this. You may not have influence like a pop star or somebody like that or the president of the United States or some famous person. But do you have influence? In any way, form, or fashion, do you have influence? If you do then you have the ability to lead. Now, that doesn't mean that you might not be gifted with the gift of leadership, because in the New Testament we hear that there is an actual gifting called leadership. In Romans chapter 12 it says, those with the gift to lead should lead. But if leadership is influence, then all of us have at least some realm of influence in leadership in life, whether it's over your children, over your spouse, coworkers, if you have influence, how do you wield and use that influence? For good or for bad? Okay? So, there's a guy by the name of Thomas Griffin. He's a web developer. In one of his blog posts, he writes this, good leaders lead by personal influence and also by example. They don't demand allegiance or unilateral loyalty, but rather influence action from a humble yet confident posture. Bad leaders, however, lead by title and dictation. Do you know who I am? You ever heard that? You ever seen that on video somewhere when a mayor or somebody of public influence gets pulled over by a police officer? Okay. Bad leaders lead by title and dictation. They demand that work be done in their way and refuse to relinquish control. They project outward confidence to mask a deep insecurity. The more control a person exerts over another is actually a revealing quality of insecurity. If you feel like you have to have more and more control, that means there's something inside of you that is a little bit off. I think of God himself, who we always say is in control but allows his free creatures called humans to make choices and decisions. If he micromanaged every decision you made, would you have freedom? No, you wouldn't. See, because God is the most secure being in all of the universe, he allows for you to make decisions even when it's one that he wouldn't make for you. So what do we look at when we look at the nation of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament? We see there's a leadership problem when you read through these Old Testament books. And the problem was that the leaders, the kings, the priests, many even of their prophets and their community leaders had become so consumed by the pursuit of wealth, social status, selfish ambitions, that they ended up compromising integrity, not only of themselves, but the whole nation. Do you see this happening today anywhere? And I'm not just, listen, I'm not mocking one political leader over another, but the reality is when you have to push yourself forward to advance yourself, what tends to happen? See, good leaders don't mind to fall into the background and not be noticed because they lead by influence through a humble position of confidence. They don't need to have their name stamped on everything. They just need to make sure that the organization, the people, the nation, the community, whatever is headed in the right direction for the most success. The laws that these leaders in the Old Testament were supposed to be implementing and living by, specifically the law of Moses, which are the first five books of the Old Testament, they had become merely suggestions to these leaders. Do the laws of the land become merely suggestions? 
that some are enforced, some aren't. Sometimes they're enforced on some people, and sometimes they're not enforced on others. Or in some cases, for these Israelite leaders, they became hindrances, these laws did, in accomplishing what they desired rather than what God desired for the nation and for them as leaders. Their care and leadership of the people at large were neglected to the point that injustice was stacked upon injustice. The poor became poor, not because of their own fault, but as a result of the greed of their leaders. We look at people in our own nation today, and yes, they have become poor and down and out because of consequences of their own behavior, but there are a lot other people out there who are in those situations of no result of their own. And so if we categorize people as one lump into this one categorization, a lot of times we neglect to be the hands and the feet of God to those who truly are under a, a system of injustice. We are called, as Micah says, to do justice, to love mercy, and also to what? Walk humbly with our God. Well, the leaders of Israel were not doing that. The poor became poor. The rich became richer. Those who remained faithful to God and obedient to the laws of God were often oppressed the most by the national leaders. Why? Because when, when you know the right thing to do and, and you don't do it, when people are doing the right things and you're not, it shines a light on what you're doing that's wrong. And so you don't want those people around. A lot of times you'll hear stuff like, oh, you must be holier than thou. It's because there's a, a guilt complex in an individual when they're around somebody who's living a right kind of life. It doesn't mean they're living maybe the perfect life because all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God, but the reality is when you are seeing somebody who's doing their darndest to live in obedience to God's word and his will and his ways, and you know, you know that you know that you're not, we have one of two responses. And often the response I see is a thumbing of the nose at the individual who's actually living a, a life of holiness. And they, they get called out. They get ridiculed. They get ostracized. And in many regards, get oppressed. This can happen on a corporate level, not just an individual level. When, when a nation and its leaders start to head off in a direction that is contrary to its own laws or specifically to the laws of God, what happens to those who continue to live out the laws of God? They become the oddball, the weirdos. They become the ones that are labeled with the phobias, fill in the first part of that term. Because they aren't going with the rest of the crowd to do this, that, or the other. They're staying solid in their faith. So the religious leader, is there anything new under the sun? Solomon says there's not in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's just a different people in a different time period. We may be more technologically advanced than they were some 2,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago. Not much is different. Human character and human situations have a revolving door. Read the book of Judges. It says that in Judges chapter 2. It talks about how they had a judge, they became good, and then when that judge died, they devolved into wicked behavior. They had another judge, they became good, and they devolved into wicked behavior. But the problem was they didn't start back where they started from. They kept devolving into this pit until they get to the end of Judges, and they start to say, we want to be like the other nations around us. And so now you get to Ezekiel 34. The people are in exile. Ezekiel, the prophet, who was also a priest, he's now also in exile, but God has been coming to him in spirit and showing him visions of things to come and also showing him the reality of their current situation. And so we pick up the narrative today in Ezekiel 34, starting with verse 1, and this is what, starting with verse 1, and this is what happens. This message came to me from the Lord. Again, when you see all caps, L-O-R-D, that is the formal name for God in Exodus chapter 3 that God gave to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. That means Yahweh. So this message came to me from the Lord, 
Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds. Now, he's not talking about shepherds that have sticks and wear the bedraggled clothing and are the low people on the totem pole in society. He's talking about their leaders. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Now, wait a minute. So let me get this straight. They're already in exile. Do they still have leaders? Yes, there are leaders also in exile who still continue to demand allegiance. But what did I tell you two weeks ago? I wasn't here last week, but I said, Jerusalem at a certain point in time in Ezekiel's prophesying ministry was not completely sacked yet. So everything around the nation of Judah was completely overtaken by Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar had not overtaken the city of Jerusalem. Its walls remained intact, its center of worship, the temple remained intact, and the king at the time, Zedekiah, had remained behind city walls. He goes on to say, you feed yourselves instead of your flocks. Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, wear the wool, and butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. You, you've not taken care of the weak. You have not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you, you've ruled them with harshness and cruelty. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd, and they're easy prey for wild, any wild animal. They've wandered through all the mountains and the hills across the face of the earth, yet no one has gone to search for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you abandoned my flock and left them to be attacked by every wild animal. He's talking about the wild barbaric people that have encroached upon the nations. The Assyrians, who were the modern-day terror terrorists. You look at some of the behavior in the in the, the terrorizing things that the Assyrians did they were masters at torture the Babylonians were not too far behind them when they overtook the southern kingdom of Judah they were maybe slightly more civilized but nonetheless they were somewhat barbaric as well you took care of yourselves Oh, I'm sorry, I stepped over a couple. Let's go back to verse 8. As surely as they live, says the sovereign Lord, you abandoned the flock, left them to be attacked by every wild animal, and though you were my shepherds, you didn't search for my sheep when they were lost. You took care of yourselves and left the sheep to starve. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I now consider these shepherds my enemies. That's got to be a pretty rough place to be. The ones that God allowed to be in positions of authority. He now has set his mind against them. They are no longer his advocates, the ones through whom he desires to work with to lead his people. They are now his enemies. And I will hold them responsible for what has happened to my flock. I will take away their right to feed the flock and I will stop them from feeding themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths. The sheep will no longer be their prey. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. Now listen to how it shifts. I myself will search and find my sheep. It's like, if you want a job done, you just got to do it yourself. <laughs> it's kind of what's going on here. It's like, I, I wanted you to do the right thing, and I gave you centuries to do it. And now I'm going to have to step in and do it myself, which is fine. But I wanted you to do it. I myself will search and find my sheep. I will be like a shepherd looking for his scattered flock. I will find my sheep and rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on that dark and cloudy day. I will bring them back. What's a dark and cloudy day? It's when these nations were allowed to come in and overtake the nation of Israel and Judah. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and by the rivers and all the high places where people live. Yes, I will give them good pasture land on the high hills of Israel. There they will lie down in pleasant places and feed in the lush pastures of the hills. That sounds oddly familiar to a psalm I know. I will tend my sheep. I myself will tend my sheep. 
and will give them a place to lie down in peace, says the sovereign Lord. I will search for my lost ones who strayed away, and I will bring them to safety, safely home again. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. I will destroy those who are fat and powerful. I gotta be careful. Uh, I'm not powerful, but I sure am fat. Not as much laughter from that as I thought. Um, <laughs> but I will destroy those who are fat and powerful. I will feed them, yes, I will feed them justice. And as for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says to his people. I will judge between one animal of the flock and another, separating the sheep from the goats. You remember Matt last week preached on taking responsibility for your own actions. If you remember the passage from Ezekiel he preached on, he talked about how your, your parents' sins or your ancestors' sins will not be held against you. Everyone will stand for account of their own decisions. I will surely judge between fat sheep and scrawny sheep. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped down, didn't I? Sorry, verse 18. Isn't it enough for you to keep the best of the pastures for yourselves? Must you go on and trample down the rest? Isn't it enough for you to drink clear water for yourselves? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must, why must my flock eat what you have trampled down and drink water that you have fouled? Do you ever feel oppressed, pushed down? Like You ever feel like you're trying to make it ahead and, and get a leg up and then boom, you're hit with something else. And sometimes it just happens. But other times you realize it's the circumstance and the situation of the culture in which you live. This is what the sovereign Lord says, I will surely judge between the fat sheep and the scrawny sheep. For you fat sheep pushed and butted and crowded my sick and hungry flock until you scattered them to distant lands. So I will rescue my flock and they will no longer be abused. <clears throat> I will judge between one animal of the flock and another. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now David's dead by this point. Who's Ezekiel talking about? Is he going to resurrect David from the dead from the city of Jerusalem where he is interred? I mean, he's still there today. You can go to David's tomb today in Jerusalem. Is he going to resurrect David from the dead? No. What did he promise David? What did God promise David when David was alive? <clears throat> you will always have a descendant to reign on the throne of Israel. When it seems like God has neglected his promise when the Babylonians overtook and when the Assyrians overtook and there's no more nation. And it seems like the last line of Kings was Zedekiah is done. What are we going to do? You know, this is one of the cool things about God is that <clears throat> when everything seems gone and lost and hopeless, in just the right time, he brings about something amazing and miraculous. It would take a few hundred years from Ezekiel's time to the coming of this baby being born to a virgin in Bethlehem. And this baby would grow into a teenager, a young adult, and then into what we would consider adulthood today and take on a ministry that his father had called him to. And not his earthly father, but the heavenly father. The Son of God would be in the line of David. He would be the David that Ezekiel's talking about. He will feed them and be a shepherd to them. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among my people. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then he closes with this. Listen to this. I will make my covenant of peace with my people and drive away the dangerous animals from the land. He's going to drive out the dangerous people. Now, you're going to say, well, wait a minute. So after the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians came into power, and then the Greeks came into power after them, and then the Romans came into power, and though the Israelites or the Jewish people were allowed to come back under Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire, they still weren't able to be a nation again. But they were able to rebuild the place of worship, the walls around Jerusalem under Nehemiah. 
God reestablished them as a people, set them up in the lands that they once inhabited. And though the Romans were the oppressive government that ruled at the time, and yes, persecuted the Jewish people, they didn't drive them out and execute them beyond measure. When Jesus was on the land, in the land, I will bless my people in their homes around my holy hill, Jerusalem, and I will prosper. Excuse me, I will, I, and in the proper season, I will send the showers they need. There will be showers of blessing. The orchard, orchards and fields of my people will yield bumper crops, and everyone will live in safety. When I have broken the chains of slavery and rescued them from those who enslaved them, then they will know that I am the Lord. They will no longer be prey for other nations, and wild animals will no longer devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will frighten them. And I will make their land famous for its crops. So my people will never again suffer from famines or the insults of foreign nations. In this way, they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And they will know that they, the people of Israel, are my people, says the sovereign Lord. You are my flock, the sheep of my pasture. You are my people, and I am your God. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. So what's the key point, really quickly, this morning is this. Who you follow determines the course of your life. I always tell you, scrutinize every word I say. You should. When I'm reading scripture, when I'm preaching, when I teach a class, or when, when I'm talking to you personally, don't just take my word for it. Put it to the test. Put it to the test. Any pastor who stands on any stage across the world should be challenging you to do what God is calling you to do. And God, first off, calls you to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we call salvation. But he doesn't stop there. He calls you to follow him. And following him requires an action on your part. It requires a learning on your part to dig into his word, not only the written, but the living word who is the living God through Christ Jesus calls you to communicate with him through prayer and not just over dinners or lunches or before your head hits the pillow at night. It's a concentrated communication with your heavenly father, a communion with him to where not only are you talking, but you're listening. Bad leaders do not lead in that way. They want you to listen to their voice. They direct you to what they desire. They never challenge you to question what they're telling you. They expect you to buy what they're telling you hook, line, and sinker. And if you don't, then you're on the outs. Bad leaders or bad shepherds don't care about the people they're called to lead. Instead of considering the condition and the plight of their people, they only concern themselves with how things will directly or, shall I say, indirectly affect them. In his book, The Way of the Shepherd, Dr. Kevin Lehman explains the difference between good leaders and bad leaders by using an analogy of shepherding, which is what Ezekiel does in this passage too. Listen to what he mentions two different types of people who care for the sheep. Listen to this. A hireling is a person who tends the flock only because it's a job. You have a shepherd and then you have a hireling. Okay? A hireling is the one who is out there because they're getting paid. Now, you might have a good hireling, but sometimes you might have a bad hireling who instead of watching the sheep and doing what they need to do, are just consuming themselves with whatever their hearts desire. They may be neglecting the sheep, just hoping to get to the end of their shift so that they can go home. Those are bad leaders. We've had, uh, through my years of ministry, of. <clears throat> I've heard ministers and I've been on staff with ministers who've said, you don't pay me to do that. Then we won't pay you at all. <laughs> it's okay. I remember one time a youth pastor who, who I worked with who 
stop showing up on Sunday mornings because they, they couldn't count that as their, their time of pay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know it, you may say, well, that sounds logical. I don't, and maybe you disagree with me, but the reality is you shouldn't have to be paid to come to church on a Sunday morning, especially if you were on staff there. I mean, I only work one day a week and this is it, so I get paid to be here. But <laughs> that joke, I don't know why it's still funny, <laughs> but some reason it is. A hireling is a person who tends the flock only because it's a job. The sheep mean nothing more to someone like that than an opportunity to get paid. If you're looking for the difference between a shepherd and a hireling, a shepherd is willing to pay the price that a hireling is not. He tends the sheep for money. Uh, he tends the sheep for money, the hireling does. But a shepherd does it because he loves the sheep, and that makes all the difference. Um, your leaders should love you. But I want you to understand, again, because we live in a culture right now where loving is equated with affirming. Okay? And, and I don't want to open the Pandora's box of that discussion right now, but suffice it to say, loving is not always affirming. Loving is sometimes telling the hard truth that you don't want to hear, but it's good for you. It's like medicine that you take that makes you gag, but you know what's going to fix the problem or at least the symptoms of the problem to give you some comfort. Loving is not always affirming, but loving is always telling the truth, but speaking the truth with love. And that's necessary. You should have good leaders that are willing to do the hard work. They don't clock in and clock out. They are available, but here's the thing. <laughs> Brandon, you're not always there for me. Look around the room. When you get to a certain size, and I'm not, please, please understand, I'm not advocating for small church. I, I was at a small church in Dayton, Ohio for about eight years. And, and, and about 75 people to 100 people is about the max, that one individual, and it's a hard job even at that, can really spend time influencing, connecting with at an intimate level 24-7. This is why you have multiple staff, and these multiple staff and pastors on staff should be empowering you to works of ministry. The idea that, well, the, I, I didn't get a visit if the pastor didn't come visit, but you've had 20 other people from the church come and see you is, is, is poor leadership. If you, if you have a bad leader, they're the one that's doing everything and not empowering you to do it, Okay? They're micromanaging every detail of aspects of the ministry of any congregation. Sorry, I'm beating a dead horse here, but you get, I hope you get the understanding here. So the so-called leaders of Israel and Judah, they had become hirelings by God. They were there, they were, they were earning money hand over fist by taxing the people, by taking the people's lands and their crops, and they weren't doing a darn thing to help anybody out. They were helping themselves out, but they weren't helping the people of God out, whom God had placed them in positions of authority and power to do. By the time you get to Jesus, what does Jesus do? And I think it's Matthew 23 where he talks about the woes to the religious leaders. Woe to you, whitewashed tombs. Why does he call them all of these things? Because he says, you religious leaders in Jesus' day, this is a few hundred years later than Ezekiel, he says, you heap burdens on the backs of people, of God's people, but you yourselves aren't willing to lift a finger to help alleviate some of that burden. Now, not every burden can be alleviated. This is why there is a call to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. But we are also called in the community of faith to help liberate and lift and walk with and to journey through situations together. Not just those who are paid to do it, but all of God's people. Again, let me quote from Thomas Griffin in that blog post. 
Good leaders think about how to multiply and to grow the people around them. Bad leaders think about how they can use the people around them to advance themselves. If you're looking at an individual as just a project that you can check in, check out, fix, and move on, <laughs> you're missing the mark. You're missing the point. People are not projects. People are people. Created in the image of God, God loves them, desires for them to know him intimately through his son, Jesus Christ, but also desires for us to come alongside them and to journey this thing called faith with them. Who are you following? Good leaders. What do good leaders do? Really quickly, there are echoes. Remember I said there are echoes from a psalm in this passage? Read Psalm 23 with me, a psalm of David, written many years before Ezekiel's time, which I'm assuming God was referring to when he was telling Ezekiel in this vision about, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In this book, in this, in this psalm, think about some of the qualifications of a shepherd, but also some of the things that comfort the sheep in that narrative. I want you to hear, again, Philip Keller. How many of you are familiar with Philip Keller? He's an older writer, wrote in the 70s and 80s. He wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Listen to what he says. Philip Keller explains what it really takes for sheep to lie down. When you see sheep, rarely are they lying down. I've never seen a sheep lie down that I can recall. Some of you may have, but here's what he says it takes for a sheep to lie down. He writes, the strange thing about sheep is that, is that because of their very makeup, it is almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. The first one is this. Owing to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free from all fear. When was the last time you were free from all fear? <laughs> okay. Because of the social behavior within a flock of sheep, sheep will not, not lie down unless they are free from friction with others of their kind. How long has it been since you have been free from friction from others of your own kind? Maybe it's your family, your church family, your co-workers. If tormented by flies or parasites, Sheep will not lie down. Only when free from these pests can they relax. What are the things that are nagging at you? That like a gnat flying around your face and your ears, they're just, just driving you crazy. Lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel the need for finding food. They must be free from hunger. There are many churches across our nation and across the world today that are not getting fed but spoonfuls of sugar. And, and I hope you're not feeling that here. It's a hard enough job to be able to study the Word of God and to give you the truth of God's Word without feeling like you're going to offend somebody. But the truth of the matter is the gospel is offensive in and of its own nature. You don't have to make it so. The stuff we read in the Old Testament is hard to swallow. So what do you do with all that? There are hungry sheep everywhere, if you want to call them that. Hungry believers, but there are also hungry people who are not believers. We live in one of the most spiritually conscious times in America's culture, or in America's history. Do you know that? And yet the biblical worldview among church people, among those who say, I go to church pretty regularly, is below 10%. That's a biblical worldview. 
Well, what's a biblical worldview? There are about eight or nine qualifications, and I'll just give you a handful of them. Satan is real. God is all-powerful. Salvation is only through Christ. Those three of the nine. The Bible is God's word of truth for his people today. That's another one. There are only 9% or less of people, depending on your generation, that have a biblical worldview that consider themselves regular churchgoers. <clears throat> there is a deficiency of food, even though there's an abundance of it to tap into. <laughs> Spiritual leaders, I'm sad to say, being one of them myself, we are people pleasers. <clears throat> we want people to be happy with us. We, we have an insecurity when people grovel and complain and get upset because, oh, I got a pot roast or I got to go to lunch. I mean, you don't understand what I'm saying. I don't like the way he dresses or what he looks like or she smells like or what they say or I don't like the music. And, and so we fall into this trap as spiritual leaders, and instead of feeding the sheep the food for nourishment, we feed them what they're demanding, which is stuff that often tickles the ears and makes you feel good, but you become engorged and bloated and sick. Bad leaders continue to feed junk food. <clears throat> good leaders feed healthy food. And the flocks under leaders that are feeding healthy food become stronger. And in the culture they're planted in are able to truly be the light and the salt that they are called to be. They're able to withstand persecution, difficulty, circumstances that come their way. What God is talking about to the Israelites who are now in exile is that he's going to come and give a leader, a shepherd, who will be able to feed the flock. He too will address the poor spiritual leadership from those who are still in leadership. But he will do what the other leaders, even the good ones, have never been able to do. He will take the burden off the backs of the sheep. He will take the pests, the flies, the maggots. He will take the friction. He, he will take the famine. And he will bear all of that so that we won't have to. And some 2,000 years ago, Jesus hanging on the cross His last, or before he breathes his last, he says, it is finished. Do you know what, it, what was finished? The task the Father had called him to, which was to deal with the problem of sin and death that had plagued humanity, had found its way into the own, its own spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. He, he once and for all dealt with that. So that he could become to his church, his people, the leader they had so longed and desired, but had missed. If you have any leader that you sit under that's not pointing you to him, be careful. Who's legitimately not saying, it's not about me, it's always about him. And it's not this false sense of modesty, but it's a real genuine sense of, I'm at his mercy. He's not at mine. I try the best I can to live the holiest life I know how, and I still mess it up. My kids can tell you they're a walking testimony of their father's bumbles and grumbles. My wife could tell you even more. But I try. And you should try. And when you fall, there is a shepherd, a good shepherd, Who's there to say, okay, come on, we can do this again. Yeah, you're bruised and bloodied, but we'll make this. Remember, I took the beating for you. Yeah, yeah, you're scarred up, but you're going to be okay. 
We'll dust you off and you, you come with me. It's going to be rough. The way is narrow. Not many people take this way, but we'll make it. I promise you, I've blazed this trail already. I'm going to be with you through the dark valley. You don't have to fear that evil. You can walk and lie down in green pastures. It's going to be okay. As the worship team comes forward to close this out today, I want to kind of leave you with this. God tells Ezekiel that there will be a new covenant. And do you know what that covenant, he says, do you remember what I said? You remember what Ezekiel said? It's a covenant of what? Peace. Isaiah tells us that there would be one who would come, this Messiah. He would be a wonderful counselor, but he would also be what? A prince of peace. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, Always be full of joy, Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Now, this is 2,000 years ago, okay? But remember, time works differently in God's arena. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. Then, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Again, Philip Keller writes, When my eyes are on the Master, they are not on those around me. This is the place of peace. So the question is today is, who are you following? The proper pronunciation. I have my, you know, my, my software keeps reminding me, it's whom are you following? It just feels weird. I feel too proper saying that. So I'm, I'm going to go back to my Kentucky roots. Who are you following? All right? Who, who are you subjecting yourself under the leadership of? First and foremost, it must be Christ and Christ alone. And those you surround yourself with, if they are not leading or pointing you toward Christ then the question I have is, what influence do you have on them as a follower of Christ yourself? Because maybe God has put you in a place to lead them and point them to him. I don't know what your situation is, where you are. I don't know if you've been subjected to a bunch of bad leaders throughout the course of your life, starting in your home life to now. And you could be upset about it. You can be a victim of it and continue the victimization of yourself but not rising to the occasion and allowing God through Christ to redeem you and deliver you from evil. Or you can say, all right, bad things have happened to me. Out of no decision of my own, but I don't have to let those things define me. The bad influences in my life that I was subjected to no longer have to hold sway over me. Even in exile, the Lord it can be your sanctuary. He desires to bring you home, to give you future and hope. But he still doesn't demand that you do it. He just extends a hand and says, will you come and be with me? Let him be your good leader, your good shepherd. If you have a chance, read John chapter 10. It is about Jesus the Good Shepherd. Hopefully it will illumine you to who he is and who he desires to be for you. Today, if you've been affected by the message in a way to say, you know what, I've been following the wrong influences, the wrong, and maybe you've been the wrong influence over your own life because you've allowed the enemy to speak these insecurities into yourself to tell you you're not good, you're not great. Maybe you need to break the hold of the enemy on you and allow Christ to deliver you. If you want to pray today, 
uh, and others to pray with you. You can come to my right, your left. There's an altar over there. There's steps here. When you come over to my right, you're telling people, hey, I need somebody to pray with me. I can't do this alone. You can come to my left, your right. There's an altar and stairs here. Nobody's going to bother you. You can come and reconcile with God, pray to God, lay it all on the altar. But please don't leave today. If the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has convicted, moved, have brought you to a place of decision, then don't leave today without making that decision. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are the good shepherd. You do lead us in ways, God, that we need to be led. And God, sometimes it's hard. I, I'm going to be honest. It's the places you lead sometimes look so difficult, but, but you go with us. You prepare the way for us. Even those, even those places that look difficult to traverse, though we may not have strength in and of our own selves to do it, you give us the strength through the power of your Holy Spirit to navigate some really tumultuous terrain at times. Remind us that you are trustworthy, that you're good, you're holy, and that your desire for us is freedom through your Son, Jesus Christ. Deliver us from evil. Give us a sense of purpose and strength. Remind us that you've given us all we need to step into your grace, to step into that place where you are. in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.